Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to the second of our two-part special on musician and songwriter Una Mae Carlisle. While the previous episode was about my own experience in trying to track down information and artifacts related to the singer, this one is a history of Una Mae Carlisle based on what little information I was able to collect. I've still got some more leads to follow up on, but thought, well, why not present what I already had? My hope is to sometime early next year produce a visual documentary on whatever I've amassed at that point. That said, if you have any special knowledge or items related to Uname Carlisle, by all means, reach out to me and you can do that by writing me at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com or hitting me up on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. by looking up Spun Counter Guy. And with that out of the way... Okay, Uname, let's play! Unimate Carlisle was born in Zanesville, Ohio on December 26, 1915 to Edward and Melly Carlisle. Zanesville was noted for its high population of mixed-race citizens. The story given that the location had been a popular stop for many runaway slaves prior to the Civil War, fugitives often deciding to settle in the town while marrying whites and Native Americans. Unimate herself would claim that she had both African and Cherokee blood. The Carlisle family appeared to live a comfortable life, and from a very early age, Melly Carlisle taught her daughter piano. Unimay's first public performance was at the age of three for a group of disabled World War I veterans in Chillicothe, Ohio. When she was 10 years old, her family moved to the Jamestown Xenia area. In addition to playing on a regular basis at church and schools, Unime performed on WHIO and WSMK radio in Dayton. Apparently, a handful from the start, she ran away from home at the age of 12 to play on a station in Cleveland. There she was heard by Duke Ellington, who helped her get a regular job on station WOW. My heart is giving me the rush. I'm dreaming my dreams. I'm scheming my schemes. Please tell me, yes, my turtle dog. While already popular in New York City, Thomas Fats Waller and his band, along with his wife Anita and two boys, had come to Cincinnati at the latter part of 1932 to perform on WLW radio alongside a local gospel group called the Southern Sons. This move was to give the artist more exposure in the large markets of the Midwest. While in the Buckeye State, Waller had been told about a phenomenal young pianist who had been a popular performer at a local resort. Fats invited the 17-year-old Unime Carlisle to play on the radio with him for some Christmas shows, to which her mother, Melly allowed only if her sister chaperoned. 
When the young girl arrived to the studio, she began to warm up on a piano. Waller, ever the showman, made silly faces at her through the recording booth glass. At their first on-air performance together, Fats was reportedly so gobsmacked by the young girl's talent, they ended up jamming all night until morning. At possibly seeing a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Yuname refused to return home. She finally agreed at her mother's insistence that she at least live with some friends of the Carlisle family in the Cincinnati area, which would allow her to become a regular on Waller's radio program. Yuname even traveled with the group for a few out-of-town shows. At a gig in Youngstown, Ohio, the band's road manager took the band's money and disappeared, leaving the group no way to return home. A cousin of Yuname's was able to get everyone back to Cincinnati. It's difficult to know for sure what was the exact nature of the relationship between the 29-year-old Waller and the teenage Carlisle. Fats was a man of many vices, food, drink, and women, but would he have seduced a girl so young? According to Waller biographer Duncan Sheik, Waller certainly introduced Carlisle to aspects of the jazz lifestyle, notably staying out late and drinking alcohol, specifically something called Dr. Ross's corn whiskey. In Maurice Waller's own biography of his father, he notes that his mother was getting more and more upset at the young girl always being around and acting possessive of her husband. Anita Waller would ultimately announce that she and the children were returning to New York. Whatever the case, Yuname, it seemed, became infatuated with fats. The two often quarreled violently, and she once drank enough oil of wintergreen to make herself sick in hopes of getting fats' attention and sympathy. Waller and his band members were themselves growing weary of the young girl as well. The group was supposed to travel to Louisville for a show at a country club, and Yuname was told to be ready by a particular time so as to be picked up. The girl waited in vain for the yellow and black car that she and Fats had both chipped in on some days before. At realizing she had been purposely left behind, Yuname took a train to the city, located the most expensive hotel in Louisville, phoned and learned that sure enough, a Thomas Waller had just checked in. In her march to the hotel, Carlisle was spotted by some of the other traveling musicians, which caused them to exclaim, Here comes Sister Gizzard Lips, before fleeing from her line of sight. Soon the irate singer spied Waller himself, the man who wrote Ain't Misbehaving, doing just the opposite with the Southern Sun's deacon driving in the very car she had helped pay for. Three other not-ugly girls enjoying a ride with the men. Perhaps they were going to a prayer meeting, but whatever the jaunt was about, Yuname assumed the worst and made a scene in the middle of the road. Fats claimed to the girl that he never intended to leave her behind, but they were all just running late, and he trusted that she would be resourceful enough to make it to the gig. I don't stay up late, got no place to go. I'm home about eight, just me and my radio. At the end of 1933, the WWL radio show came to an end, and so Fats returned to Harlem. According to Maurice, his father was certain that Yuname wouldn't follow him all that way. After graduating high school, Yuname attended Wilberforce University in Ohio and performed as a majorette at the school's baseball games. She quit school before graduating and headed to Chicago to try to get into the entertainment industry. 
The stay was brief, but she met three other like-minded girls, one of whom was white, pretending to be black, who convinced her to go with them to New York City. She agreed, and the four pooled their resources to get themselves to the eastern seaboard. In 1934, she briefly worked at the Cotton Club as a showgirl before working for music publisher Irving Mills as a copyist arranger. Unime next joined Lou Leslie's Blackbirds Review. Leslie was a white writer and producer who put together variety shows featuring black singers, dancers, and comedians. These popular shows boosted the careers of such eventual legends as Bill Bojangles Robinson, Adelaide Hall, and Lena Horne. The Blackbirds played London in 1936 featuring dancers Buck and Bubbles, otherwise known as Ford Lee Washington and Joe Sublett, trumpet player Valeda Snow, and Unime on piano. Although Unime came to make many English friends and even enjoyed participating in cutting contests with Buck at Happy Blake's barbershop near Leicester Square, Leslie reportedly got on the pianist's nerves to the point that she, quote, took sick. On the advice of senior actor, political activist Paul Robeson, she quit the Blackbirds and returned home to America. Journalist Dan Burley's assessment of Unime at this point as impulsive might be an understatement, as that after only 10 days back in the States, the girl changed her mind again and returned to Europe, this time heading to Paris without an invitation or a plan. In time, the musician would make a name for herself, accepting offers to perform in at least 18 countries. France proved to be such a welcoming country to Yuname and many other African-American jazz musicians that it was often observed that, quote, Harlem had invaded Montmartre, the bohemian section of Paris. Many black musicians could play larger halls and auditoriums than they could back in the States, and unknown musicians could make a worldwide name for themselves by performing for the international crowds that visited the nation's jazz clubs. In the latter half of 1937, Unime enjoyed a five-month residency at Paris's Les Beufs Sous les Trois, or The Ox on the Roof, singing and playing piano, although sometimes playing piano duets with Garland Wilson. It was at this club that British jazz pianist, composer, and producer Leonard Feather would first witness her impressive skill and delivery. Unime would also manage her own club in Montmartre for a time. Unime's first recording occurred via her appearance in a French film named Care For, released in 1938. She portrayed a singer at a club delivering a playful version of the Anna Sosinko composition, Darling, Je fou ami beaucoup. Je suis ici pas très long, mais s'il vous plaît, écoute ma song. Vous avez un grand appeal, just speak my heart, c'est difficile. Unfortunately, some dialogue in the film occurs during Unime's performance, and no full, uninterrupted recording has to date been released. Also during her year on the continent, Carlyle formed friendships with several established celebrities such as Maurice Chevalier, Josephine Baker, Jean Gabin, and King Farouk of Egypt. She even performing at the latter's wedding reception and getting to live in a royal Cairo palace for three weeks. Another royal, the British Duke of Kent, was a legendary jazz fan who also became a close friend of the singer. British producer Leonard Feather had written an article in 1937 for Melody Maker, lauding Unime's talents, adding that 
she was, quote, a ripe opportunity for somebody, unquote, to record. In February and March of that next year, Yuname was a resident at London's Havana Club and then in April was playing at the Shim Sham. And so taking his own advice on May 20th of 1938, Yuname was finally officially put on record by Feather. Although she had been developing her particular style for years, these six cuts introduced a fully formed Yuname Carlisle to the record-buying public casting her spell of joy upon the world with her renditions of Hangover Blues. I've got the blues so bad All I want to do is cry Oh, I've got the blues so bad All I want to do is cry Gershwin's Love Walked In Love walked right in and drove the shadows away Love walked right in and brought my sunniest day One magic moment and my heart seemed to know That love said hello Though not a word was spoken In others that next January, Yuname entered the studio again with Feather, this time in Paris playing piano for Danny Polo and his swing stars on two tracks, Montparnasse Jump and China Boy, where her piano solo flew alongside the band's runaway rhythm. Years later, Feather would observe that Yuname had, at this time, a lifestyle as self-indulgent as Fats owned. In 1939, Fats Waller was in London putting together a concert called the Jazz Jamboree. Whether it was planned or happenstance, Yuname and Fats ran into each other. The girl informed her former mentor that she hadn't been feeling well, and Waller would later visit her in the hospital. Though it is not clear when she was diagnosed, one of Carlyle's elements was mastoiditis, an infection located in the skull behind the ears. On the first day of September, the German army invaded Poland from the west, and two weeks later, the Soviet army invaded the same nation from the east. The European countries that would go on to make up the Allies began to declare war on Germany, including France and Britain. All Americans were ordered by the U.S. government to return home. It seems Una May was gigging in the belly of the beast. She, at the time, performing at the Scala Club in Berlin, ran by an Egyptian national named Mustafa. And so the next month, Una May and a little more than a dozen black American entertainers boarded the SS St. John at Bordeaux, France. Before arriving in New York City, trombonist Frank Withers and violinist Leon Abbey formed an orchestra from the musicians on board in an attempt to relive one more Harlem and Montmartre moment. Yuna gave a sultry performance of I Can't Give You Anything But Love, a song made popular by Adelaide Hall in 1928 while in Lou Leslie's Blackbird review of that same year. That I can give you Once back in New York City, Yuname began to make a name for herself playing such venues as the Village Vanguard, Kelly's Stable, the Plantation Club, and Hotel Dixie. 
possibly as a result of the run-in with Fats. A duet between the two was recorded on November of that year for Bluebird. Their version of I Can't Give You Anything But Love was the result, Yuname playing the part of the lovesick girl while Fats clowned his way through his part. Well, my tailor's waiting right outside the door. You can give me looking swell. I ain't playing. Diamond bracelets, Woolworths, doesn't sell. I never had a diamond bracelet in my life. What do I want it for? Till that lucky day, you know darn well. What happens? What goes on in here? Oh, baby, that I can give you anything. The song was a hit, putting Yuna Carlisle's voice in the ears of thousands of music listeners for the first time, and was without a doubt her big break in the United States. Later reflecting on her mentor's hand up to her after his death, Carlisle stated, As a matter of fact, if it hadn't been for that one particular recording I did with that, well, I, I don't know where I'd be today. Around that time, Danish aristocrat and noted jazz enthusiast Baron Tim Rosencrantz tells in his autobiography about throwing a going-away party for himself, just as he was to return to his native Holland. Inviting many of the friends he had made in the New York jazz scene, Fats Waller showed up with Yuna under one arm and a package of gin under the other. Three other beautiful women who worked at the Cotton Club arrived with the two pianists as well. Fats announcing, here's the meat. I hope you got the knives and forks. The party indeed was a real blowout. The Cotton Club girls doing belly dances while at some point Fats Waller decided to take an actual bath. He falling asleep with his bowler hat on and the water still running. Rosencrantz spared no amount of hyperbole to describe his own falling for the, quote, delicious dish, unquote, Una May, as she played the piano at his party. Quote, I had such a bad crush on her that I had to fill my pockets with ice cubes, otherwise I'd go up and smoke. She looked so gorgeous, all ready to slap on a piece of toast, and the toaster was right there and waiting. After ten drinks, I proposed to her, but she wasn't paying attention. She had tipped back eleven, unquote. Because Fat's bathwater had flown down into the floors below, the party was shut down by Rosencrantz's landlord. Since the Baron's ship was leaving in just a few hours, the guests turned to helping their host pack. Rosencrantz boasted that he tried unsuccessfully to pack Yuna into one of his steamer trunks. With lipstick on his cheek and not on his chin No hat, no shoes, but a belly full of gin Uncle Auntie still got on his panty Oh, Papa's in bed with his bitches on Papa's in bed with his bitches on The Bluebird label booked another session for Una May in August of 1940. Again, she backed by Fats Waller's band, known as His Rhythm, but this time without the man himself. This collaboration produced four songs, including what would be her first hit as a solo artist, Now I Lay Me Down to Dream. Now I lay me down to dream of you I've spent another day A lonely day, it's The song climbed up the charts as Carlisle found herself again confined to a hospital bed. Around this time, Barney Young became Una May's manager, and by the end of the next year, he would have the power of attorney. 
Young was a Harvard-educated lawyer who had some musical talent and so ventured into the music business to practice his legal skills. According to his nephew Charlie Young, the elder Young, quote, began in the 1930s buying up some smaller music companies along with songs of the writers of the day, and he began to manage some of those writers as clients, unquote. Barney Young and Yuname would not only become close friends, but would write several songs together as well. On another session that November with a new lineup, which included Benny Carter on trumpet and Zuddy Singleton of Jelly Row Morton, Papa Celestine fame, on drums came the original Yuname Carlisle and Robert Sauer composition, Walking by the River. There's dew up on the ground And not a soul inside I'm walking by the river Cause I'm meeting someone there tonight The song's origins, Unime explained years later, came from a desire to pay tribute to those in England who were very kind to me, she said. Specifically, the Duke of Kent. Quote, I felt that I owed him something, as well as some other very nice people that I knew over there, and I had to pass the Thames quite often. So I thought of a river, and I walked by it. So that was it, unquote. Another story she told Ebony Magazine later in 1951 was that she had written most of the song in England and while back in the U.S. was trying to finish it, thinking it lacked a good title. She shared her dilemma with writer John Steinbeck while the two had drinks in a club. He supposedly suggested the title Walking by the River. The two found another club that had a piano where Yuname played the song with its new name. Quote, you've written a pretty tune, unquote, Steinbeck assessed. The singer replied, quote, well, you've written a pretty title, unquote. The murmuring want to say, there's no time to delay, so hurry on your way, my friend. If you don't get there soon, there may not be a moon to guide you to that happy end. This would prove to be the song Yuname was known for. Her rendition appeared on several charts, including Lucky Strike's Your Hit Parade. The New York Amsterdam Star would report in May of that year that the song made Yuname, as a composer, the first colored girl to reach the top ten. During one public performance of the song by Mark Warnow and his orchestra, Yuname approached the conductor to compliment him on his arrangement. When Warnow replied with, So, you like the song too? The singer replied to the man who was unaware of who he was conversing with, You see, Mr. Warnow, I wrote it. The song would find success for other artists who recorded it soon after, including Cab Calloway, Peggy Lee, Benny Goodman, Ella Fitzgerald, and many others. I distant sound I see a far off light I'm walking by the river cause I'm meeting someone there tonight On the same session where River was recorded is also where another successful song emerged. I Met You Then, I Know You Now, Carlisle co-wrote with violinist Leroy Stuff Smith, also managed by Barney Young. I met you then, I know you now, you smiled when you looked my way, my heart skipped a beat that day, the moment you looked my way. 
Unimay's health troubles required her to return to her home state of Ohio for a surgery. In a letter she wrote to Barney Young in December of 1940 from Dayton, in addition to her asking her manager to get in touch with Harlem's iconic Teresa Hotel where she had been living so that her mail could be cared for, she reported that her surgery had had to be postponed until she was not so run down. By February of 1941, she was well enough to play a few shows in the Cleveland area, one at Lindsay Sky Bar and another at the Rose Room, both with fellow Xenia native and singer Rose Murphy. The latter show was a benefit to provide CNI dogs for the blind in the Buckeye State. In March, Bluebird would book another date in the studio with Una May, this time featuring former Count Basie saxophonist Lester Prez Young. The George Whitting Ted Snyder composition Beautiful Eyes came out of this session and sold well. Met a charming gentleman and honest he's so swell. I'm almost frantic, beautiful eyes. He had such beautiful eyes. He told such beautiful lies. He had me hypnotized. And possibly, as payback to Hitler's National Socialists for kicking her out of Berlin, Carlyle also recorded the odd patriotic composition by Doris Fischer, Blitzkrieg Baby. Got my gun out, can you see? Blitzkrieg Baby, you can't bum me. Blitzkrieg Baby, you look so cute. All dressed up in your parachute. Let that propaganda be Blitzkrieg, baby, can't bomb me In 1941, the Bluebird recordings of Unimaze began to feature the John Kirby Orchestra. Lester Young would return and be joined by Benny Carter on additional saxophone and John Kirby on bass. For many, this is the apex of Carlisle's career, in spite of the fact that she seems to farm out the piano playing duties to others. Oh, I'm Evil and I See a Million People are among the many highlights during this era. Somebody's been hugging my baby since I've been gone. My baby don't hug me like he used to now. That's why I'm evil. I don't know what to do, but I'm evil. I've been thinking about you. I got the hoogie doogie doogie. Got the boogie woogie blues. Oh, yeah. Downbeat magazine reported in April of 1941 that Una May returned to playing Kelly's stable after a three-month, quote, disappearance, during which there were rumors that the singer was, quote, dead, blind, or hospitalized. The headliner at the club was none other than Billie Holiday just before Una May replaced her. In May, Una May was booked to play the legendary Apollo on a bill that included Lucky Millinder, Ralph Cooper, and Pigmeat Markham. In the latter half of 1941, Una May may have also fallen hard for another man in the entertainment industry, Canada Lee. Lee started his public life out as a professional boxer, then moved into acting, working with such writers and directors as Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, Orson Welles, and Alfred Hitchcock, among others. The House on Un-American Activities Committee also investigated Lee for his leftist political activism. At least on one instance, Unime traveled to Detroit to be with the actor, but it is unclear whether or not the actor returned the singer's affection. In addition, Lee had many of the same bad habits that plagued Fat Swaller, including a roving eye for the ladies and the tendency to spend large amounts of cash until nothing remained. So long, shorty. 
you got a long way to go. Don't forget to let me know when you reach Tokyo. Oh, so long, shorty. I'm gonna be kind of... At the Teresa Hotel, another man would become smitten with Una May, the hotel manager, Walter Scott. The man would often invite Una May to play in the hotel's club room. Although it was observed that Scott was loyal to his short, frumpy, and thick wife, the usually very serious man would, on some special occasions, allow himself to lean against the piano to gaze into Unime's eyes, at times sitting next to her on the piano bench, singing along. In spite of the manager's admiration, before the year was out, Unime would marry for the first and only time to dancer and club manager Johnny Bradford. In 1942, a dispute broke out between the American Federation of Musicians Union and the record companies over royalty payments. At that time, royalties were not paid to the musicians when the recordings were played on the radio, and it was felt that musicians were losing live paid gigs on the air to their own recordings. When no agreement could be reached between the two parties, there was a recording ban ordered by the notorious union boss, Joe Petrillo, in which no artists in the AFM were allowed to record new songs. This lack of new recorded music is often cited as the event that killed off the big band era. No doubt this hurt Unime's ability to earn income as well. One significant live performance for Unime occurred on May of that year at the Ritz Theater. Harlem Cavalcade was a review of black performers that was directed by Ed Sullivan and Noble Sissel that included such talent as the Delta Rhythm Boys, Garland Wilson, and Fonoy Miller. Unime's sole contribution to the crowded program was performing her Walking by the River. Harlem Cavalcade received fair reviews and only ran for 49 dates. In 1943, Unime received two incidents of public chastisement from veteran singer Alberta Hunter. Hunter had been writing a regular column since 1927 called Alberta Hunter's Little Notebook in the Baltimore Afro-American, where she often criticized fellow black entertainers for usually behavior that reflected badly on the race as a whole. For example, Hunter had said that a show Victoria Spivey and Billy Adams had put on in Nashville, Tennessee, had been unsuccessful because their costumes were dirty and their material was hoary. For reasons not specified, Hunter took aim at Unime in her May column, announcing, quote, A word to Unime Carlisle, you are too fine an artist to let anything spoil your colorful career, unquote. Then in August, Hunter fired another shot with, quote, Unime Carlisle opened at Elmer's but stayed only a few days. Una, why don't you pull yourself together, unquote. Calling me on the phone Best idea you had Was saying you're all alone I did invite you that night Everything turned out just right When you dimmed the parlor right The best idea you Thomas Fats Waller died of pneumonia while on a train in December of 1943. He was 39 years old. Una May would perform I Can't Give You Anything But Love without her mentor at a memorial show for Waller during the American Swing Festival in 1945. <laughs> 
why you're sure to find me. By the time the recording ban was lifted in 1944, John Kirby's orchestra was in financial trouble. And so American producer and publisher Joe Davis was the next to record Unime in May of 1944 for his own label. Assembling a small group of musicians, Davis included Ray Nance on trumpet, who had been with Duke Ellington, Bud Johnson on tenor saxophone, Shadow Wilson on drums, who worked with Lionel Hampton and Count Basie, and herself back on the piano. All eight songs put down in the first two sessions were composed by her and manager Barney Young, the latter handling most of the lyrics. Of the tunes recorded, Taint Yours proved to be a great success, selling 19,000 units in less than three months. No use trying, cause I know you're lying, taint yours. Leave it alone. There's a little golden rule I learned in school. Don't be a fool, keep cool, keep cool, taint yours. Davis recorded Carlisle again in August, which included one of his own compositions, Heart of Stone. There was a sunny smile on your face I let it lead me on How could I know your tender embrace Covered a heart of stone The final recording date between Davis and Carlisle occurred just two months later in October, during which time the singer also had a regular engagement at a club called Reuben Blue. The sessions were largely a disaster, though as to exactly why, it is not known. Joe Davis's biographers, Bruce Bastin and Kip Lornell, have heard the several unusable recordings and lay most of the blame on Una May. Reportedly, her left piano hand sounded stiff at times, while at other moments she seemed to fumble. Her vocal timing was also off-kilter. She sometimes missing words, and at one point could be heard cursing in frustration. Whether it was because of Una May's flawed performances or some other factor, most of the other session players sounded as if they weren't feeling the songs either, playing wooden at best. Although more tunes were scheduled to be cut, only The Rest of Your Life and the gospel song, That Glory Day, were apparently fit enough to release. Stop procrastinating, drop that no good Satan, then make ready for that glory day. When someday from out the skies, that chariot swings low, don't be taken by surprise and not be there to go. Get prepared to board her, set your house in order, any day may be that glory day. A film called Stars on Parade would feature Una May in 1944. The feature's thin plot involved a gaggle of radio stars putting on a performance to help keep a radio station from going out of business. Introduced as the Walking by the River Girl. Miss Euler May Carlisle. Una May would perform two songs, Taint Yours and Teasing Me. Teasing me, teasing me. Why do you keep teasing me? Keep my poor heart hurting all day through. Although the exact date is not known, Una May recorded 13 songs for Voice of America around this time. 
Among the tracks, half were newer versions of her already known works, while the other half were songs previously unrecorded by Carlisle, including a version of Fats Waller's Ain't Misbehavin'. No one to talk with all by myself No one to walk with but I'm happy on the shelf Ain't misbehaving, saving my love for you I know for certain the one that I love I'm through with flirting, it's you that I'm thinking of Ain't misbehaving, saving my love for you and a never-recorded-by-anyone title called When Our Country Was Born, written by Gloria Parker. Now people everywhere thought the world was very square Till Columbus took a trip in Isabella's ship Now Columbus shook the Indian's hand And made the big chief understand Strike up the band when our country was born When our country was born. Another song of note on these recordings is Unimay's version of the Super Song or Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's a bit of a rabbit trail, but this is not the song you're probably thinking of. It's a magic word I first heard when I was in Canton. It's the word Aladdin used when he would rub his lantern. Get out your dictionary at the longest word in history supercalifragilistic espialidocious This particular supercalifragilistic expialidocious was written by Patricia Smith and Don Fenton and recorded by Alan Holmes in 1949, 16 years before a song by the same title written by the Sherman Brothers appeared in the film Mary Poppins. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Supercalifragilistic Smith and Fenton were the pen names of Gloria Parker and Barney Young. Young later sued Walt Disney's music publisher company for copyright infringement, but ultimately lost the case after it was proved in spite of the Sherman brothers' claim that they had made up the excessively long word as children, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious had actually existed earlier in the English language. Though Unime seemed to shy from taking any political positions, she did lend her support to one political candidate, which had to have been to the chagrin of some of her close friends and associates. Harlem had been a hotbed for leftist politics at least since its official Renaissance time period, and probably before. It was often mused, though denied by its creators, that U.B. Blake and Noble Sissel's seminal 1920s production of Shuffle Along, of which Fats made contributions to, was a parable cautioning about the impracticability of communism. Two of the Harlem Renaissance's most famous friends, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, had a falling out over whether the Communist Party would help or exploit the black community. By 1943, Harlem had become so friendly to or undaunted by the ideology of Karl Marx that it elected a bona fide Soviet Union defending Communist Party member by the name of Ben Davis to be their councilman. Davis had the support of such entertainment giants as Lena Horne, Leonard Bernstein, Langston Hughes, Billie Holiday, and Una May's friend, Paul Robeson. In 1945, the front-leading opponent to Davis was labor leader Benjamin McLaurin, 
McLaurin was a hero to many in the black community and labor movement alike. He having been a train porter who organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a workforce that had historically been paid shamefully pitiful wages. But McLaurin was also part of the often relegated anti-communist faction of the American labor movement and faced Herculean odds going against Davis and his powerful allies. All the same, McLaurin did get the support of at least one artist, Unime Carlyle, either in disdain to or ignorance of. American communist historian Gerald Horn in 1994 dismissed Unime, in addition to misspelling her name, along with Eddie South, Carol Bryce, Avon Long, and other McLaurin supporters as, quote, relatively unknown artist, unquote. In the end, Davis triumphed easily over McLaurin and other contenders, although in a few years, the councilman would end up in prison after being found guilty of advocating the overthrow of the United States government. In 1947, the Snow White Cosmetic Company used Unime's beauty and popularity to invite women to, quote, delight, unquote, their men by using the Magic 3 product. The company boasted in magazine advertisements that the singer used the product, which would also give consumers an equally, quote, lustrous crown of glory, unquote. Also during this year, the singer would record for the national label, According to records, 16 titles were cut with only two ever seeing the light of day, where the river meets the sea and stop going through the motions. First you give me the eye, then you're suddenly shy when we're on the way to bleed. Stop giving me the business, just give us a key. Other titles that were made during the sessions include I'm Getting Old Before My Time, East Branch, It's a Fine Morning, and My Confectionary Baby. National would eventually be acquired by Savoy, which would in turn be acquired by Concord. At this writing, the other 14 songs have never been released. In addition, Yuname made an appearance that year in a film called This Joint is Jumpin'. It's not uncommon that all memories are reliable on every point. Una May herself told slightly different versions of the same story. One tale with factual trouble yet is too amusing to leave out is one told by musician jazz historian Al Rose. He reports in his memoir about how on Christmas Eve 1946, there ended up being one of the biggest snowstorms in New York City's history though he may be confusing it with the blizzard at the end of 1947. He, along with some musicians and reporters, were at the Sugar Hill Edgecombe Avenue apartment of musician and journalist Dan Burley. In addition to his coverage of and participation in the jazz scene, Burley would be famous for reportedly coining the term bebop and even wrote the Harlem Handbook of Jive. Back to the party, Yuna was the only female present. Snowed in, the group had a jam session and ate pancakes prepared by Yuna and Burley, ingredients having been lowered down and into their window by a generous unknown neighbor from one of the floors above. At some point, Yuna went off to a bay window and began writing. She soon had a song which she presented to the group, 
Rose claims it was Walking by the River, but of course that song had already been written and recorded six years before, with Robert Sauer given sole credit for the lyrics. Possibly it was another river song of Una May's recorded the next year, November 1947, called Where the River Meets the Sea. Of course, if Rose has the 1947 blizzard taking place in 1946, who knows what song it was. In 1948, Una was closing shows at a New York cellar venue called Club Ebony. One reviewer for Billboard magazine complained that neither Una May or the other performers were ever given introductions, so some in the audience may not have had an idea who they were watching. Also during this year, Una May appeared in another film, Boarding House Blues. The film's thin, recycled plot featured Moms Mabley as a boarding house manager having to deal with various troublesome tenants, among which included a man in a gorilla suit and a baby bear. When the existence of the building is threatened, a talent show is organized featuring several comedians, dancers, and musicians, including Lucky Millinder. Unimay's performances of It Ain't Like That and Throw It Out Your Mind are superb and capture the pure joy the singer could at times exude. Anyone can plainly see, unless they are blind, that I'm yours exclusively, I'm the one-track kind. When you're out without me, never worry about me. Anytime you doubt me, throw it out your mind. Unimay would also share the spotlight with other such greats as Count Basie and Sonny Terry on a radio concert called Negro Stage Review. Backed by the Lumel Morgan Trio, the singer delivered her take on the standard Then Their Eyes. 1950 would be a big year for Unimay, while being a last gasp of sorts. She would record at least 29 sides for Columbia, including one called Frenzy, a spot-on imitation of Billie Holiday's unique vocal phrasing. Sadly, this would be the final year of her recording career. Though there would be a few more up-tempo titles added to her body of work, many of the songs seem to reflect her decline in health with their dark, dragging themes and structure. If he returns with the breaking of dawn. On the other hand, Carlisle would become the first African-American woman to get her own national radio program, which was broadcast over a hundred stations via the American Broadcast Network. Interestingly, ABC had asked Southern radio stations in their network on whether there would be any objections to a program hosted by a Negro woman. There were none. Thus, every Saturday at 6 p.m., an estimated average of 7.5 million Americans would listen to the 15-minute program for Unimay's, quote, agile fingers and a voice that lingers, unquote. The show generally opened with Walking by the River, which served as the theme song, and closed with another of her compositions, I See a Million People. 
Typically, Yuna May sang and accompanied herself on a variety of standards and original compositions, but at least on one occasion, she had a guest. Reportedly being a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, her program featured the 1951 MVP Roy Campanella on a Christmas special. Yuna May even wrote and recorded a never-released song for the baseball star called Grand Slam. In 1953, Joe Davis signed a contract for use of one of Unime's compositions, written with Fess Williams, called Start Talkin' I'm All Ears. If this song was ever recorded, it is to date unavailable. Another of Unime and Barney Young's, he using the pen name Ted Brent compositions, was recorded by John Greer and his Rhythm Rockers. Rhythm in the Breeze is a kind of marching eerie blues that sounds like a screaming Jay Hawkins number a few years ahead of its time, reflecting the emerging rhythm and blues sound that was leaving jazz and big band to the generation before it. By all accounts, it would be the final new composition of Carlisle's to be recorded and released. It whispers tenderly, you're coming back to me. Like the rhythm in the breeze, there was stillness in the night When you filled me with delight During that year, Unime's health had taken an even worse downturn than previous occasions. Again, it is unknown when it was found, but stomach cancer was now on her list of maladies. She returned to Ohio to have more surgery and then recover at her Aunt May's farm in Springfield, Ohio, 18 miles from Xenia. During her convalescence in January of 1954, she wrote to Barney Young, quote, I've had three operations, and I mean it was terrible. I've never suffered so much in my life, unquote. Among those particular surgeries included establishing an artificial opening between her stomach and intestine, division of the vagus nerve pertaining to the lungs and stomach, draining of the bile duct, and dilation of the sphincter. By this time, estranged from her birth mother, Melly, whom she addressed as mother, Unime was so close to her Aunt May that she called her mama. Attesting to her relative's devotion to her well-being in spite of the older woman being a widow and having her own health troubles, Yuname explained, quote, I don't know what I could or would have done if it hadn't been for Mama. She didn't miss a day coming to the hospital, and I was in there for almost five weeks. She doesn't make much money. Food is high. Yet anything I think I want, she tries to get, plus my medicine, unquote. Barney Young had been sending money to help the singer, who by this point was financially strapped, probably as a result of her medical bills and earlier jazz lifestyle lavish spending. The singer was so poor that in the same letter where she thanks Young for his assistance, she explains that they had no coal, which was the main way folks in the countryside at that time kept warm. Considering her fragile health, the cold of Midwestern winters in the days before proper insulation and central heat might very well have been the end of Yuname. But she seemed optimistic, she thanking, quote, God and all humanity for my recovery, unquote. In March of 54, Yuname reported to Young that an unspecified surgery had been performed on her that was the first of its kind, she receiving eight and a half pints of blood and her weight having dropped down to 67 pounds. Still, she reported her health was better than it had been since she had been a child, 
and that she had an enormous appetite. Two months later, she wrote, apologizing to Young for the behavior of her mother, who had apparently attempted to meddle in Unimay's business affairs by contacting him in New York City. Though Millie Carlisle rarely visited her daughter in the hospital, she had also arrived on one occasion, along with Unimay's sister, while Unimay was receiving a blood transfusion to try to persuade the singer to sign some kind of legal papers. The mother and sister were also pushing Unimay to divorce her husband, Johnny Bradford. The singer refused to sign anything, angering both her mother and sister. She also asked for some more money, chiefly to buy a special belt that was supposed to assist her after the surgery that affected one of her sides. The device cost $16. It's difficult to ascertain what was happening on Young's side during this whole time period, but Yuna wrote again in September of that year, pleading for help in buying the belt, in addition to having some extra cash to give her Aunt May. The singer hoped that she would be able to return to New York City by the next month, promising she would take any work Young could set up for her. In his defense, Barney Young managed around 10 to 20 entertainers, including musicians Stuff Smith, Artie Shaw, and Mez Mesro, Pulp Fiction writer Walter Gibson, and even magician Harry Blackstone Sr., Young often had roles outside of his job description with some of the artists. Many of these creatives would often blow their earnings while living large and then expect Young to provide more. Some on Young's roster would even come by the office asking for drugs because some of the other managers in the industry provided this kind of service. Mez Mesro, in jail serving time for selling marijuana, once wrote Young asking that the lawyer bring some music as that he had been made director of a jailhouse band. Even Morris Young, Barney's brother, was a doctor and did try to help with some of Unimay's medical troubles. If all of this wasn't taxing enough, Barney Young also was involved in several legal battles with ASCAP, BMI, NBC, RCA, and other entities over insufficient royalty payments. Because of the discrimination black artists often received from the collection services, Young even helped start the Colored Performing Rights Society to serve as an alternative to ASCAP and BMI. Probably because of her desperate financial situation, her need to be in the public eye, and her general tempestuous nature, over time, Una May grew even more demanding in her letters to her manager. She reminded Young in many of her missives that she had sent several unanswered letters and even tried to call his office in New York repeatedly. In one letter she wrote, quote, I am writing you once again to ask the reason why you won't write or talk to me, unquote. By January of 1955, Unime was back on the radio in Ohio, at least, and seemed scheduled to appear on the burgeoning medium of television in New York City, quote, just as soon as the dentist fixes my teeth, unquote. Although her oral malady was undetectable in photographs, in some of her movie appearances, especially Stars on Parade, the problem was painfully obvious. Even though Yuna still was financially destitute, her marriage to Johnny Bradford, she admitted, was finished, and she was having some kind of trouble with the musicians' union not sending her membership card. Lack of a card would make her unemployable in much of the entertainment industry at that time. 
In some of her letters, the future still appeared to be so promising that she proclaimed to Young, quote, God is good and please believe me, I thank him. All those people who said I was finished can just watch my dust. I haven't even started yet. I aim to go just as high as I can, God willing. The sky is the limit and I've never been more serious in my whole life, unquote. Two months later, she announced that her teeth were fixed. Her weight was up to 125 pounds and she felt like a new person. Regardless of her optimism and outward appearance of recovery, something still wasn't completely right. Yuna remained in Springfield for nearly another year. She writing to Barney Young cryptically in March of 1956, quote, There isn't too much time left and I hope to make the best of that time, unquote. Not long after this, the singer was able to return to New York City and fulfilled her desire to be on television. Of the programs Una May would appear on, one program was called Toast of the Town, but would be later known as The Ed Sullivan Show. On a show called Backstage, Una May was reunited with the Southern Sons. Other programs that featured the singer were We the People and something called Gloom Dodgers on WHN-TV. In spite of what seemed to come back both in her career and health, on November 7, 1956, Una May Carlisle died in a Harlem hospital. Like her mentor, Fats Waller, the cause of death was complications from pneumonia. She was 41 years old, just having two more years of life than the man who had brought her to the world's attention. Now my castles have just crumbled to dust. Yes, what did I do? Unimay's funeral was held in Xenia with Baptist minister L.C. Hacker of Springfield officiating. Unimay had told a reporter for Ebony Magazine five years before her death, quote, I've lived, and if I die tomorrow, I'll have no regrets. I've had a full and rich life. Music is in me. It's all I know. There's a city called heaven, population of two. Just me and an angel who looks very much like you. If you'd like a list of the sources I use to put all this together, uh, you can send me an email. Again, if you have any Uname-related tidbits you'd like to pass on, or if I've gotten anything wrong, shoot me an email at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. So if you haven't heard In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 273, that's my reckoning of my discovery and quest to find out more about Yuna and all the adventures I've had in that process. Also, if you're still in a jazz mood, you might give episodes 187, 188, and 189 a listen. There, the great Laszlo Montgomery and myself chronicled the jazz scene in Shanghai, China in the 1930s and 40s. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Oh, in my heart, there's sex. Don't you have faith in me?
no tenés rencor. 